Hello, I'm Father Charles Connor, a priest of the Diocese of Scranton, Pennsylvania, and author of the book Classic Catholic Converts. We'd like to welcome you to this series, The Catholic Priesthood Through the Ages, as we meditate today on the priesthood and the Eucharist. Dom Hubert Van Zeller was an English Benedictine priest of some decades ago, whom we have had occasion to mention before in this series. He was well known for writing spiritual books, and one of the books that he wrote was entitled The Gospel Priesthood. In that particular book, Dom Hubert quoted an earlier French spiritual writer, and this is what he said. If everything in our Lord's life led up to Calvary, everything in the priest's life leads up to the Mass. What Van Zeller and the, the earlier writer were trying to say, the point they were trying to make, is that the Mass, the Eucharistic sacrifice and sacrament, the very mystery of our faith, must be the highlight and the spiritual summit of every single priest's day. That to which he must give special concentration and special preparation. Von Zeller described St. John Chrysostom as, quotes, pleasantly explosive in his view that God prefers the barking of dogs to the praises of man that are uttered in an unbecoming manner. And then Dom Hubert went on to try to explain in his own words the benefits accruing to any priest who really entered into the, to the daily mass that he's privileged to offer. And this is what Von Zeller wrote. In England, our cathedrals are fronted and flanked by lawns of cut grass, which are called a close. The town is kept at bay. There is no traffic across the close. The priest must contrive to lay down a close around his mass. No traffic, no business, before and after mass, silence. The alternative is spiritual suffocation, with the Eucharistic part of his day safeguarded and allowed to give impetus to his charity. The priest will be able to meet the demands made upon him by his parish by his studies, by his correspondence, and steeped in the spirit of his Mass, he will be able to take the Mass with him into his work. A very, very beautiful description of how the Mass radiates through the entire day of the priest. Nearly 35 years after Dom Hubert Van Zeller wrote those words, the late John Cardinal O'Connor, the Archbishop of New York, wrote a pastoral letter to his priests which we have already made reference to in this series, the letter was called Always a Priest, Always Present. And one of the significant points that Cardinal O'Connor was making in his pastoral letter was the very same thing Dom Hubert was speaking about decades earlier. The Mass radiated through all the activities of the Cardinal's day, and indeed he said to his priests of New York, the Mass must radiate through each and every element of your priestly day as well. Nothing, then, it would seem, more clearly identifies the priesthood than the Eucharist, the real presence of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, and the very, very special relationship each priest shares in bringing that mystery to himself and in bringing that mystery to the people he serves. The Eucharist, <clears throat> the real presence of our Lord on our altars and in our tabernacles, had a, a prototype, a symbol, already present in the Church of the Old Testament. 
The ancient sanctuary of the temple where the Levitical priests would go in to offer their sacrifices had a few component parts about it that were prototypes of what we know so very well. There were two items of particular interest. The lampstand was one, and the bread of presence was the other. Both in the Holy of Holies, the lampstand and a large table containing on top of it the bread of presence, twelve loaves of bread, symbolic, of course, of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, St. John in his Gospel looked at the lampstand and looked at the table with the, the bread of presence on it, and he saw both as a prototype. The lampstand was a prototype of Christ, the light of the world. The bread of presence was the prototype of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. The so-called table of the showbread, the table on which was contained the twelve loaves of bread, was important not so much for the beauty of the table on which it rested as for the bread that was placed on top of the table. It was, as we said, the bread of presence. Quite literally, it was called the bread of the face. And it was to this bread of presence that Christ referred in Matthew's Gospel when he said, the loaves set out there before the Lord. This is the reference that our divine Lord had in mind, this bread of presence, these twelve loaves that were placed on this table in the Holy of Holies. The bread was meant as a memorial placed continually in God's presence. And every Saturday, a fresh supply of bread was substituted for the old twelve loaves. The bread of the Old Testament was therefore the presence of the people before the Lord. The bread of the New Testament is the presence of the Lord before his people. But you see the prototype. In the Old Testament, there was never a moment when the people were out of God's sight. Bread was a continuous reminder to him of the covenant he had made with them, of his relationship with his people, of his promises to them, of a Savior and a Redeemer. Just as the twelve tribes of Israel were made one in his presence, so also his church, St. Paul told us later on, so also his church, by the one bread, is made holy. Though we are many in number, the same bread is shared by all. In addition, as we mentioned, there was a lampstand, a sanctuary lamp, I suppose we could call it, that was always kept burning very close to this showbread, this bread of presence, the shadow, the anticipation of the bread of life. The lampstand was noted in the book of Leviticus where we read, never must the altar be empty of this perpetual fire. And today, the Eucharistic presence of Christ in the tabernacle, his real presence is always, always symbolized by that lit flame. The Old Testament is also a wonderful point of reference for concentrating on the gift of the Holy Eucharist in the life of every priest. In the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, we read a very lengthy discourse of our Lord in which he compares and contrasts the manna of the Old Testament, the manna that was given to the Israelites in their journey, with the feeding of his faithful, his priests, and his laity uh, with the Holy Eucharist. The manna, as we know so very well, is a type or a shadow which ultimately is destined to disappear in the full light of the new, the new gospel dispensation. The manna was, was simply a preparation for what was to be the greatest miracle of all, our Lord's giving of himself, his body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity to you and to me 
to laity and priests in the gift of the Most Holy Eucharist. There are some points that we should make about the manna in the desert. It's interesting to note that God did not shower down manna indiscriminately in the desert for everyone who happened to be walking through the desert to eat. Just any chance wanderer at all. That was not the case. Rather, he let the manna fall right around the tents of the Israelites, very close to their dwellings. And it did not fall anywhere else. Years ago, Monsignor Ronald Knox, the very famous English convert and Catholic chaplain at Oxford University, was giving a retreat to priests. And he dwelled on this particular idea. And this is what he said. Every exclusion implies an inclusion. The manna, in defining the Israelites and separating them from their fellow men, united them more surely together. It gave them a corporate sense. In other words, there was a certain unity of faith among God's chosen Israelite people. It was something which made them very, very unique as they were making their journey through the desert to the promised land. It gave them a corporate sense, a sense of unity. Another point about the manna is that it was the food of pilgrimage as the Israelites were making their way from Egypt into the promised land. The food of pilgrimage, it was a daily need, it was a necessity, and it most certainly was not a luxury. It was something that began to fall immediately after the Exodus, and it stopped falling just as the children of Israel were ready to cross the river Jordan. It had to be gathered up every morning for fear it would corrupt, except on the eve of the Sabbath, as we read in Scripture, when it was possible to gather up a double allowance. It was a free gift, but it was not some kind of a rare treat. God doesn't ordinarily cheapen his miracles by making them into an everyday occurrence, one spiritual writer has noted. Yet he did repeat this miracle of the manna. Why? Perhaps because he wanted us to see clearly that the Holy Eucharist is meant to be our daily bread. And then a final thought about the gift of manna is that the supply of manna was exactly proportioned to the needs of those people to whom it was given. No more, no less, exactly proportioned. The phrase that we read in Scripture is a rather curious one. The children of Israel gathered one more, another less, and they measured it by the measure of a gomer. Neither had he more who had gathered more, nor did he find less who had provided less. But everyone had gathered according to what they were able to eat. In other words, each person had gathered exactly what was sufficient for his needs. The implication for the life of a priest today is very, very clear. The gifts of the Holy Eucharist that we receive are completely sufficient to satisfy all the hungerings, all the needs, and all the desires of each and every human priestly heart. So there is indeed tremendous significance, is there not, to be read into this to this gift of manna that God provided his chosen Israelite people. The priest, therefore, just from what we see now in the Old Testament, the priest is inserted into the mystery of the Holy Eucharist, sacrifice, and sacrament in a very special and unique way. Avery Cardinal Dulles, in his work, The Priestly Office, published some years ago, reflected on the, on the nature of the Eucharistic sacrifice, and he observed 
that most of the prayers said by the priest during the Mass are expressed in the first person plural, the use of the word we. The priest says that we come before God confessing our sins, asking for forgiveness, praising and thanking God, and imploring God's blessing. Then, after a brief invocation of the Holy Spirit, the celebrant goes into the narrative describing the Last Supper. And at the central point of that narrative, he breaks into the very words of Jesus Christ, uttering those words in the first person singular. Then the celebrant of the Mass will shift into the present tense, saying in the words of Christ, Take and eat, this is my body. Cardinal Dulles made an interesting point. He said that the effect is entirely different than it would be if the priest kept using the past tense and if he kept using indirect discourse, informing the, the congregation that, uh, well, Jesus had told the apostles that they should take and eat. No, it is the priest, the celebrant of the Mass, who makes the words of Jesus Christ his own. Speaking as he does in the very person of the living Christ, says Dulles, the priest allows Christ to speak in him, making Christ's own sacrifice present in a new way. St. John Chrysostom put it another way. He said that the priest lends his tongue, gives his hands to Christ. He does. We priests handle Christ in our hands. We give our own human hands to the Lord to be used. Such words, of course, only affect what they signify when they are uttered by one who is validly ordained to act in the person of Christ, the head of the church. Cardinal Dulles writes as follows. Sacramental ordination to priestly office confers the power to pronounce the words of consecration in such a way that Christ is the principal speaker and actor. Only in this way is it possible for the Eucharist to be identically the same sacrifice that was offered on Calvary. As the Council of Trent clearly taught, says Avery Dulles, the priest and the victim are the same, only the offering, only the manner of offering is different. As we've seen before in this series, this, this very beautiful idea of Christ as priest and victim and the priest configured to Christ as both offerer and offered was well developed by the late Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, particularly in his beautifully written book, Those Mysterious Priests. Here is Archbishop Sheen. Some things are too beautiful to be forgotten. Memorial Day recalls the sacrifices of soldiers for their country. Arnold Toynbee reminds us we have roses in June that we may have memories in December. Our blessed Lord came not to live but to die. He would not, therefore, leave to the chance recollection of men the memory of his victimhood. He himself would institute the precise means of its recall, and this he did at the Last Supper, do this as a memorial of me. A memorial implies an actual historical event that happened in a particular time and place and is worthy of being remembered, remembered by all. The twelve men, for example, who had gathered in that upper room in the cenacle that night that our Lord instituted the new Passover were men who had come out of the Old Testament tradition. And the words that our Lord was speaking that night brought back to them memories of that Old Testament tradition, the manna, the scapegoat, the serpent, the paschal lamb, all forerunners of what was happening that night in the upper room. But it was also an event that was going to look to the future because there was a command that our Lord gave them that night to do this in memory of me, to reenact it, to perpetuate it when the Lord was risen.
Archbishop Sheen explains. Suppose a Greek drama of Aeschylus was enacted on an Athenian stage. The purpose of drama, according to Aristotle, is to purge the soul. When the crowds left the theater, bettered in soul and conscious of guilt, they said to one another, What a shame that this tragedy is performed only once. Everyone in the world should see it. Their characters would be so ennobled. But how could that be done? By keeping the same lines and the same plot, but using different actors and sending the show throughout the world. Well, if we follow that reasoning of Archbishop Sheen just a little further, we can say that the Mass is Calvary put into time and space through the power of Christ working through his priest. Every drama, first of all, has to be conceived in the mind of an author. Then you have rehearsals. Then you have the choosing of various characters and types. You have an opening night at one central locale, and then after opening night you have road companies bringing out the production on the road. Now the divine plan of redemption went back to the book of Revelation, to that part of the book of Revelation which says, the lamb that was slain since the foundation of the world. The rehearsal would have gone through the Old Testament in such types as the sin offering, the scapegoat, the paschal lamb, in such characters as Moses and Jeremiah and Jonah and David and Job and so many others. Opening night was the Last Supper and Calvary, and the road companies then took the great drama of redemption on the road. The drama of redemption, says Archbishop Sheen, was historically enacted at Calvary. The Lord, foreseeing it on Thursday night, arranged that a memorial of his redemption should be made available to the world. He made the priests the first road company, and ever since then, other road companies are saying the same lines, renewing the same mystery in every part of the world. In the Mass, the cross is lifted out of rocky Calvary and planted in Nairobi, in Tokyo, in Athens, and in Moscow. Everyone in the world may now not only see it, but relive it. Only sensible advantages would accrue to those who wished they had been at Calvary and the empty tomb. The same drama is repeated in the Mass, and faith interprets the event in both instances. Now, Archbishop Sheen was also very clear that there are differences between the cross and the reenactment of the cross in our day. On the cross, our divine Lord was alone. In the Mass, the entire church is present with him. The sacrifice of the cross was bloody. The sacrifice of the Mass is unbloody. Though it can be shown, he claims, that there is a dying and a rising in both. In the Mass, writes Archbishop Sheen, we offer ourselves to Christ in the consecration. We die with Christ. Suppose Christ has no resurrection. Then we would be dissolved into his death and that would be the end. But Easter follows Good Friday. We die to live again. At the moment of communion, Christ says to us, You have given me your death. I now give you my life. You have given me your time. I will give you my eternity. You gave me your nothingness. I will give you my all. So in his role as a priest victim, each priest, when he receives Holy Communion, experiences two sides. The life-giving or the banquet side of communion that was described so beautifully by John in the sixth chapter of his Gospel, and also the death of Christ 
which was written by Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians when he said, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Each action then is an incorporation into his life, and each action is an incorporation into his death. The priest victim who offers and is offered along with Christ in every Eucharistic sacrifice is himself very, very deeply strengthened by the spiritual effects of the Eucharist. Dom Columba Marmion, whom we have spoken of a number of times in this series, developed this idea in one of his own retreats for priests. He took as a comparison the parable of the wedding banquet that we find in both Matthew and Luke's Gospels. The king who is described in that wedding banquet is the Heavenly Father. And when the Father decreed the incarnation of his Son for the redemption of the world, he prepared a wondrous kind of nuptial feast, symbolized by the union of divinity and humanity in his only Son, Jesus Christ. Columba Marmion now is going to rely very heavily on the doctors of the church, St. Gregory the Great in particular, who claimed that by this, this mystery, this, this hypostatic union, this joining of divinity and humanity in Christ, quotes, the Father willed in his mysterious design to realize the mystical union of his Son with the church. And then Dom Marmion adds that by uniting himself with the church, Christ was uniting himself to each individual soul by sanctifying grace and by charity. Further, we read in Matthew's Gospel that the king had invited many people to take part in this banquet, and they all excused themselves. So what did he do? He then instructed his servants to go out into the highways and to instruct the poorest of the poor to come in and to partake of this very sumptuous meal that had been prepared. Marmion, by the way, is here relying on writers like Origen and even the interpretation given by St. Jerome, the great biblical scholar, that the crowd who was invited in is representative of all the Christian people called by, called by divine generosity to the Eucharistic banquet. Those who share in the sacred mysteries benefit. They benefit tremendously from the union of love reserved for the guests coming into the banquet. Christ takes possession of their souls, and they possess Christ in faith and in charity. Don Marmion tries to describe the effect of what happens to all those who come to the Eucharistic banquet. Corporal food is first absorbed. The organism then assimilates it to itself, and in this way, it conserves life and encourages growth. The Eucharistic bread operates in us in an analogous manner. While we receive it with our mouths, Christ unites himself to the soul. He increases in the soul the divine life of which baptism has bestowed the seed. The individual changes ordinary food into his own substance, but in receiving the Eucharist, we do not change Jesus Christ into ourselves. On the contrary, he is the food of life who transforms us into himself. In the mystery of this union, we see verified the mysterious words which St. Augustine put on the lips of the Lord. I am the food of grown men. Grow and you shall eat me. 
And you shall not change me into yourself as bodily food, but into me you shall be changed. This is the first sacramental effect of Holy Communion, the growth of sanctifying grace. And by virtue of this increase, we become, through every communion worthily received, more like unto God. That is true of every priest. It is true of every layperson. There are other effects of this sacrament, if you will, in the life of priests that, that Don Marmion tried to illustrate. In talking about the union between the priest and Christ, Marmion said that one of the effects of the Holy Eucharist was the increase of perpetual charity in the life of every priest. What a tremendously important gift perpetual charity is in the life of a priest. We as priests have to be charitable men. We are sinners, but we deal with sinners. We are educated in the truths of faith, but we deal with people who sometimes have practically no knowledge of faith. We deal with people who are cynical about the church, who are mad about the church, who have a grudge against the church. We deal with anti-Catholicism. We have all kinds of things that make it insistent that the love that is given to us by the Eucharist be operative and normative in our lives. And it will be operative and normative in the life of each and every priest, provided he inserts himself totally and completely into this great Eucharistic ministry. Mystery, I should say. And finally, Marmion talks about the development of spiritual joy in the life of a priest as the result of the Holy Eucharist. It should be the purest, most intimate, and most solid joy of a priestly life. All the happiness, he writes, that you can find in creation, everything that we may observe around us, everything that we may encounter in the particular circumstances of our life, it's only a reflection. It is only a reflection of the infinite joy that genuinely should be ours as a result of our priestly reception of the Holy Eucharist. Therefore, my good people, any priest, and for that matter, we can say any layperson, who takes seriously this transforming union has the very real potential of becoming a saint. A priest spends a great deal of time in his priestly life trying to explain to others how they can become saints, sometimes to the neglect of his own spiritual well-being. This is the way he can become a saint and join all those in heaven who he helped to become saints themselves. Join Father Charles Connor next week at this time to find out more about the Catholic priesthood through the ages here on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.